This is another episode of On the Grid by Z Prime. Love your energy. Hey everyone, this is Z Prime on the Grid. I am Dylan Lockwood. Joyce Dooley is out this week, um, but she'll be back soon. Uh, but today I've got Jason Rodriguez, Z Prime CEO, back on the show to talk about what everyone in Texas is talking about energy wise. Uh, Jason, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Dylan. I'm doing great, man. Great to be back and looking forward to the conversation. Glad to hear it. So how did uh, you experience the outages on your end? How how long did you uh, lose power and water for? We lost power for three days. And we woke up about 5 a.m. Monday morning on the 15th and and noticed that the power was out. And, And obviously, it was really cold that day. Uh, at that time, we really didn't know how long that, that this would last. So uh, so what ended up happening is about 6 o'clock on that day, on the, that Monday, we did get our power back. Uh, and our, our utility is Pernalis Electric Cooperative, uh, PEC here in, in the Central Texas region. And so from 12 o'clock on that Monday to Wednesday, about 6 o'clock, so at 48 hours, we'd have rolling outages. So come, the power would come on for an hour or two. It'd go off for about three hours. And then it progressively got longer. We'd have it longer on, and then it'd be longer off. Uh, sorry, about an hour on. So by the time Wednesday was there, we were getting three hours of power uh, and about an hour and a half off. And, and, and thankfully, by Wednesday afternoon, unlike uh, several other folks that we, you know, we had our power on, on the water side, we started having water issues actually on Thursday and having to bring in snow to kind of help help support that. And then actually the harder part was trying to find drinking water because it was also out and the roads were just not, not good to drive in. Uh, went into a boil notice here in Kyle and about Monday that boil notice was was lifted. So, so throughout throughout the whole experience, um, it, it was it was definitely I'd say we were fairly lucky, though, compared to others, uh, given that we do have a two-story home. So we would come upstairs and have everyone basically in, in our room. And I have four kids, so we would all sit up there, uh, watch TV, light a few candles. And luckily, the kids had enough power in their uh, tablets and stuff that first day. So they would all share one computer uh, and find other ways to to keep busy. And for, for the most part, it was good. I think this that first few hours was... We're just trying to get used to what what this was and explain to the kids like what might happen and what we what we might need to do, uh, and then checking on everyone else to see how they were doing. What was another issue of uh, saying, hey, because we couldn't move around because of the ice, uh, it, it was making sure that one people's phones weren't going out. So making sure you can you check on them. Do they have enough water? Is food going to go bad? So all those things go to your go through your mind pretty quickly during that time. Well, that sounds pretty in- intense from a you know from a crisis management perspective. Uh, and also, you know, your CEO of our company, most of our staff is uh, based in Texas. I uh, am not, so I only got to experience this the outside, but a good chunk of our staff uh, are based in, in, in Austin or San Antonio or Dallas. Uh, so from, how did you approach the crisis from a, from a managerial perspective here, here in, at work? Really good question, and and in thinking about it, it, it really forced you know, in retrospect to think about more situations like this. Because obviously, 
you know, I personally feel I could have done a lot better job in, in looking back on it. I obviously didn't really know what was going on because we'd never experienced an outage that long. So my first thought was this, you know, the power is going to be back in, in a few hours. Um, initially, though, what hasn't been talked about a lot. So it really it, it really impacted the communication infrastructure. So even though you did have phone, you have your phones and mobile phones and you had power, texting and messaging systems were not really working very well. And so it probably took a few hours that morning to even get a hold of our staff because it couldn't get a text message out. Um, and, and even getting calls in and out was difficult. Uh, and, and we use Slack as our online platform to, it's our internal platform for internal messaging and couldn't connect to that either. So we couldn't really let people know who, who had power, who didn't, and we really didn't know who was, you know, who could connect and who would. So that first few hours was just trying to make sure people know one, it just didn't have power and it's going to take some time. I think by the second day, we realized this might be out a little longer. And it was just a matter of saying, just telling, letting our staff know, don't, don't worry about the work obligations. Just make sure that one, you can take care of yourself. And, and if, if you can do work, great, but it, it wasn't a priority. On the other side, as you mentioned, our, our staff who like yourself and others, they, they were able to step up and cover for us and make sure our clients know. And I would say most clients we talked to were very understanding uh, and partners were, they were very, they knew that the situation was, was pretty difficult here. So, so that, that definitely helped out from the work front in terms of not being, feeling like we're on the hook to deliver just as we would in any other week. So I, I would say it was a pretty relaxed approach, but in retrospect, uh, I think it's definitely forcing us to think about situations that where everyone does use communication, what are the protocols in terms of how to just let folks know what's going on and, 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 and communicating that in any type of situation like this, our standard is take care of yourself first, don't worry about the work stuff second. Yeah, I think, and I think a lot of our employees appreciated that. Um, you know, some of them, some of them had really bad situations. I'm not, I'm not gonna, I don't want to, you know, single anybody, single anybody out. So I'm not gonna use a name, but heard a story about one of our employees who had to like, the, 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 they had to share the one thing in the entire building among the the residents that could help them melt the the the, the snow they needed to like flush toilets and stuff. You know, mm -hmm. kid, kids, kids, uh, driving parents up the wall as they go into power without the, for the fifth or sixth day. So I, it was, it was pretty rough and I, it was heartbreaking to, to hear those stories. Um, but it did, you know, it was it very, I'm very impressed with the, the resiliency of our staff doing all of that, going through all that, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, doing all this stuff too. So just kudos to everyone who, who made it through. Uh, so let's let's a, a long last talk about some of the you know some of the actual like key issues surrounding this. So where from what you've seen was the breakdown? What do you think was avoidable and what maybe wasn't? A uh, tough tough question for sure. And there is no no lack of opinions and thoughts of, of out there about where, where that breakdown was. Um, so. It, I'll give my best of, of of looking at this from taking into as much of that information to account, but also yeah, as an and experience I should, of, yeah. And I should point out that you know we're we're recording this on um, the twenty sixth. Technically, not even everyone has their power and water back yet, um, so there's still going to be 
you know, probably more investigations, more uh, information coming out about what specifically happened, but it, it just sort of a in, in initial thoughts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it probably boils down to one thing is, is I said in a broader context, I think there was just a misunderstanding or uh, probably a failure to really, to really grasp the, the magnitude and the velocity at which extreme weather events were happening across the U.S. And that's not just a, a knock on Texas. That's probably a probably general statement and a fair one to, to say that no one has really looked at this and thought of it in the context of these are happening faster. How do we, how do we, how do we build these scenarios into our planning? We have not built extremes into the planning process. And, and so I don't know if that's, I think that, that that's something that we should go forward and do as a recommendation, but without that context and that frame of mind to approach the solutions and approach how we, how we manage infrastructure, I think we're going to continue to see those problems. And obviously that happened here, kind of breaking it down to the Texas, I think it's clear what we've seen is going back to 2011 an event in, in some of the issues we, we experienced there. Uh, I think you had over, over like 190 generators go out at that time. In 2011, this this time we had 356 generators that didn't come online due to weather weather related issues. Uh, whether that was a, uh, equipment failure, freezing, uh, plants weren't able to start for for various reasons, and, and that happened across the board across the across generation types. So, uh, so I think the simple answer is the weatherization factor of of, of investing investing heavily to prevent that didn't happen. And, and actually, there's a lot of reasons why they didn't happen. But if you look at what how it's regulated in Texas, the legislature would have to pass a law regulating and giving authority to the PEC or ERCOT for that to happen and resources and investments to allowing utilities to make that that jump. And just looking outside of Texas, where that's mandated in other in other regional markets that they have to do that to be able to participate. So again, that, that could be a market design flaw. Again, you mentioned good point that the policymakers have to make that decision. And I believe that's going to be one that happens fairly quickly. And but e- even even given that, let's say they did, right? Let's just say they did. Let's just, for example, would it have been enough to still avoid this this type of extreme? Again, because they weren't thinking in the extremes that we just faced. Uh, so maybe it maybe it was 50% better. I I don't know. I think we I'm just this is all hypothetical now, but I think it's just clear that we're going to have to weatherize for the extremes now, and that's going to cost cost them. So that that's the first one, right? It's just the, the the regulatory side not accounting for extremes, and they and they really ensuring that the market is prepared for extreme weather by investing in weatherization. The second one I, it has not been talked about. Yeah, there there was a communication failure across across stakeholders, and that 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 crushed. That crushed a lot of things. That crushed trust in our public infrastructure, in our uh, in our uh, legislators, in our utility leaders, and, and even and 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 to a whole lot of a community elected officials. Um, now, whether it's for forget the blame, or I think from a consumer standpoint, I understand. Right, I understand that in that situation, what you need is information to make the most best decision for your family. Um, but when you look at the walkthrough of what happened from ERCOT's point of view, too. I can put that hat on. Understanding it happened so quickly, and they didn't—they've never deal, dealt with an ex- extreme weather event of that size 
So there really was no cadence of how you communicate this when the communication infrastructure is actually kind of really, really taken out. So is ERCOT responsible for the communication infrastructure or is that left up to the individual utilities? Great question. Is that, It's actually state level, community level, and utility. State level, uh, ERCOT, and, and the utility level. So ERCOT is not really, right now, there, there, there's nothing in place that says ERCOT has to send a broad, broad message that would have to come in coordination with the state. And, and looking back on it, we believe that that's probably one of the solutions that's come out there is use this system, the statewide emergency alert system to just like when you get an amber alert or something to really hit the communication channels and make sure you're getting that out there. there. And that will create a, a levelized understanding across the state because utilities were, were it took them a while to figure out that they couldn't roll the outages. Um, so going back for those just, just listening, the original communications that utilities had to shed the load to control the outage, and that, that was coming from ERCOT. Um, but but we but as a consumer, we were thinking we were hearing rolling outages. I think that's what utilities originally thought they were going to have to do, but the load had to be shed so fast. So uh, because it had to be shed so fast, utilities did not have the ability to actually roll the outages, and that miscommunication is is where is where the breakdown happened and actually a lot of the, the suffering happened when you have people out out for over 48 hours uh, because they had because at the the local level utilities had to they had to keep their critical circuits in place so you know the hospitals the police the, the and they had to shed so much so fast therefore they couldn't roll it across the community and, and like like you would do if if you say you knew we only had to do this for maybe four hours um so, so yeah, I would call it a communications failure, not not just in the messaging, but also in the infrastructure as well. So, you know, you've outlined um, some you've outlined some key areas of focus. Uh, are you seeing any indication that that's uh, where uh, solutions are, are heading? Where I, I mean, I know the I know the national discourse has already lost its mind on this on this <laughs> issue, but in in, in Texas, uh, has the do you feel people are focusing on the right things in terms of people who actually like have influence on the, on the outcome here? Wow. 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 That's a hard one to answer Dylan. And I wish I could say yes, but from the social, the media buzz, the, that piece of it, I don't believe we are. But if you talk to ERCOT, if you look at ERCOT and you listen to how utilities are thinking about this, I, I believe they're having the right conversations. They're they're really focusing on on the issues, and you know we we've been in this industry for a while, Dylan. Um, this is a very self-critical, very humble industry. They they really pride themselves in doing the amazing work, and, and they're not ever looking to to get accolades or really want the attention on them. They they really want to focus on what that what that customer is doing, how they're serving the customer. So, so I think they're looking at this from the right direction. From the public perspective, I think that's been lost, unfortunately. And and it started at the beginning. And again, this goes back to the communication from the beginning was just, just through this. We lost an opportunity there, in my opinion, whether it was some of the political statements getting thrown into this very quickly. And, and whether it was, if you looked at one of the first headlines, they really pinned it on wind. That hurt uh, because it really rolled, rolled this into a dialogue that I, I get, I get why people have it, but at, at this time, it, it really hurt the state of Texas to have that dialogue. 
And so you roll that into now, even when they're just holding hearings yesterday at the Texas legislature, because the public outcry is so so deep and there's so much pain. And again, I, I get it. Um, we, we experienced it. And, and without even having the context of what the utility industry is, yeah, the, the, the pain and suffering folks have to go through is, is bad. So, so obviously the, the policymakers are, are, are definitely in a reactor, reactive mode and, and they're looking for accountability. And, and but unfortunately, the, that is, that's, that's not black and white. And, and I guess from what I see, Dylan, is, is because the urge and the reactiveness to try to force that accountability the easy one is the, the easy uh, the easy punches are going at, at ERCOT and because they are the grid operator and and without understanding how the ERCOT market works and what what it can and can't do who regulates it that has been lost and I think we haven't taken the time to educate the public about that and if you did I think we could have a much better conversation so obviously if the policymakers are not focused on 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 the right issues then the solution that comes out of this is probably not going to be the one that actually helps helps residents the most. It may be the short-term solution to, as we saw, the, the board members resign, uh, and, I, and I can understand that um, from, from ERCOT, but to try to pin this and want to walk away saying, hey, ERCOT is penalized, there maybe they, someone resigns, that might be a short-term win and, make, and be feel good for the politicians. And, and consumers might might get that win, but that's not long-term infrastructure protection for long-term yeah. reliability. So, so it's a long way of saying no, um, but I do believe that the, on the utility and energy side, they're having the right conversations. These are smart well, folks. Yeah. I guess I guess then the question um, becomes, you know, where where does the where does the money come from to <laughs> uh, to, to fix this stuff? Because like, I mean, if you know, te Texas is doing doing this. Uh, you know, as, as has been noted, is has its own has its own market, has its own sort of ecosystem here. And if the regulators, you know, are understandably looking for accountability, it'll be really hard to come hat in hand asking them for for public funds. And you don't want to, you know, do you don't want to follow this if you're a utility, you, you do not want to follow this up with like a rate hike. Um, mm -hmm. because that would just be the worst PR thing you could possibly do. Um, so yeah, it, it makes you wonder where, where's the, because everyone keeps saying, well, we can stop this in the future, but it's going to cost a lot. So where did, where does that money come from? That's yeah, that's the billion dollar so that's question. question that, in it, yeah. Literally. Um, so, so the governor has put out some stuff out there that as part of this regulatory framework and they're having these hearings. So most likely there's going to be a weatherization type of bill and, and with that is going to come funding so so utilities can make those investments. My guess is that's not going to come, they're going to make sure that's not tied to any rake hikes at all. Uh, you, you're right, I think that, that that's just going to create more more outrage. So that's one, one avenue. I think the broader, I think maybe interesting picture is how this enables legislation for the Biden and Harris administration and how that gives them a little opportunity to to actually pass something a little bigger and more ambitious, focused on resiliency, and and those public funds could you use the 2009-2010 Recovery Act as a model where they did invest over 20 billion dollars in grid infrastructure. Um, they could use that as a model to take it a step further. Early proposals out are like 50 billion dollars, but 
Honestly, the it's probably more about the five hundred billion dollar range if you really talk to long term over ten years to to really account for those extremes that we talked about earlier. That there's just going to be cases to where the customers really need to be informed and have the 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 wherewithal to where when the grid does go down for longer than twenty four hours, that, that there's a roadmap for them to. Uh, to, to mitigate it and, and to survive it without some of the hardships they would have to had some of these newer solutions not been there. What are some promising solutions uh, you're, you're seeing discussed? What's something, what's something out there that um, I think, you know, represents a, a, a good path forward? The good news there is, is there's a lot of solutions out there and they're, and they're really good ideas. Um, some, some of the ones we're hearing is, is really in storage. Yeah. 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 Storage. Storage is coming top of mind. We've seen that come down quite a bit, uh, at least the price of it. The use cases, large-scale storage, on-site storage uh, from, from Tesla to, to many other companies are really looking at this. Next, next, uh, next era energy is, is leading the way there. Uh, I think the microgrid and distributed energy resources approach is really going to pick up steam now to how you can be able to manage power locally when the grid does go down. So it's going to accelerate those conversations there in having backup generation uh, using distributed energy resources in extreme cases like this. So that's that's definitely one. Microgrids, energy storage. Uh, and then the other one is electric vehicles, obviously, and how you can create some bi-directional flow to power homes. There was actually a few few folks that did it that made headlines that used their their, their car battery to, to help power some of the appliances at home. Uh, on the other side, there there are some funnier ones to where uh, you had, uh, you know, you have those hookups in several vehicles now, where people were powering microwaves and TVs through that. Don't do that, by the way. Um, but we were getting we were getting creative there as this thing rolled out. But on the other side too, on the larger grid resiliency side, increasing the transmission system, heavy investments in the transmission system, increasing that through increasing the high voltage lines to be able to bring power uh, across across grids, across grid zones. But even Texas is huge, right? So how can we bring wind and solar uh, to to some of the denser communities, Houston, Dallas, Austin? How can we bring that in from, from West Texas or, or other large-scale energy re- renewable resources here at a higher rate? So that that's another one. And, and obviously, the digital technologies are out there. How do you, how do you leverage those? So that's probably a high level general there but the yeah, storage storage and microgrids we feel are are two being talked about quite a bit and and really excited to see where where those go uh, uh my final question do you think this is an actual inflection point that will move these key energy issues forward or are we going to be back in this situation again mm-hmm. Because I mean, I don't think I don't think I don't think it's I don't think it's really up for debate anymore that these kinds of intense weather events are just going to keep happening in various parts of the country. Yeah, it's a tipping point for sure. Um, And when you take it into collection, how we started the conversation, that it has forced us to really look at just how, unfortunately, this word "extreme" is. We probably need to stop using it. Is what I've learned because actually they are they are less random than how we're describing it. 
And that's probably where the miscommunication, because extreme weather, a hundred year storm, when, when you actually look at the, the, the data and the types of storms, the types of damage, uh, last year there was a $92 billion spent across 22 events over a billion dollars. That doesn't seem random to me. That doesn't seem extreme. That seems actually more frequent than, than we realize. When we put it in that box, to me, that's where the inflection point happens, is it allows us to look at this, this data set of, of expensive weather events happening at a much higher frequency, and the, the velocity and strength of these storms is increasing. So, uh, so in that case, yeah, it gives us some data and allows us to tell that story through data. Uh, again, $200 billion is what we're estimating this storm is going to cost Texas. And going back to your investment question, if, if let's just say it's $50 billion, if we had invested that in the Texas grid, it would have been worth it, right? We have a yeah, use case, unfortunately, it doesn't even account for lives lost. So, yeah, yeah. So that that's 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 kind of how how we would we would approach it. And, and certainly, yes, this allows us the the momentum to keep telling and the message to use to how we we really describe these events. And yeah, extreme, extreme. Yes, but it's it's not random. This isn't a hundred year thing. This is gonna. There's data to prove that this is not, this is gonna maybe happen next year and then it might happen the next. So that, that's how we're looking at it. I definitely hope the Texas grid gets uh, weatherized in time for the next event. Um, Cause it would really suck if, you know, people were put back in, in, into that position. I know, you know, I know people um, from like my neck of the woods where we get snow a lot and therefore have public infrastructure for it have, you know, made it made a game of dunking on Texas for not having that sort of resiliency for that. But I mean, I don't, I don't know if we would, if our infrastructure would hold up to weeks on end of hundred degree weather. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, so I, I, so it's not, you know, my, my, my point is, is that it's not something Texas ever had to think about until like the one time it happened a decade ago and the lessons were apparently needed to be learned a second time and hopefully they won't have to be learned a third time, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, one, one key point, Dylan, and, and you can weave this in here however you want or, or leave it out, but I do want to get in. The, this might help bring some context to, to it is. So when we're looking at this, uh, obviously the 2011 event has been talked about quite a bit, mm -hmm. um, but one, one comparative is to look at, so El Paso in 2011, El Paso Electric went through the same weather event and they experienced those outages. Um, and now that El Paso Electric is on a different grid, it's not in ERCOT. So one comparative is, is see what they went through and how they experienced this 2021 event. And they actually they actually weathered it very well. I think their outages were five, 6,000 at the highest, um, but they brought them down really quick. And the story is they had the same report, the same post-event analysis that everyone across Texas did. The difference is they, they invested heavily in that infrastructure and the weatherization. And the outcome is, I think it's, it's pretty plain and clear to how the rest of Texas did versus El Paso did. Um, so that's, that's one thing where we, we should look at that and, and learn from it as a state, because there is a path to how we can prevent this. Yeah, I think no, I think that's um, I think that's very I think that's very insightful. Thank you, Jason, and uh, thanks for thanks for helping uh, lay this stuff out. I'm glad uh, you and your family are safe.
You're welcome, Dylan. It's been a pleasure. Always, always fun coming on the show. I'm happy to have you. Um, and for everyone, you can find our research and media at zprime.com. You can find us on social media at uh, at dy lockwood, at je dually, at jason s rodriguez, and at zprime underscore research. My name is Dylan. And-